morning. Uh, I am Pastor Andrew. It's, uh, just, as always, a pleasure to see many of you. Though there's lots of lights on the stage, so some of you I can't see, but I'm sure it's a pleasure you're here as well. If you're visiting, uh, checking out the church, or here with friends and family, I hope that you've had uh, just a really uh, friendly and warm welcome to our church family so far. And we are going to continue in our sermon series in Isaac, and, and the chapter that we're going to focus on today is going to be Genesis chapter 25. So you can turn to Genesis 25, and as you turn there, I want to remind you that in, starting in the month of February, uh, we are going to be shifting gears into a sermon series called When in Doubt. And we're going to talk about and wrestle through some of these doubts or skepticisms, obstacles to faith that you may have or others in your life may have verbalized to you. Um, but I'm also outsourcing the material to you all. So if you could go onto our website, stonybrookfellowship.com, uh, click on When in Doubt in the top right corner of the navigation, and then you can anonymously share anything that's on your heart or mind or something that someone has shared with you in the past. Uh, feel free to keep those coming. I've appreciated all the many deep questions that have come my way so far, and just beginning to understand that I've got a lot of work to do as we work through some of these very tricky subjects. That's where we are going, but where we are today, again, is going to be Genesis chapter 25 as we continue to work through the life of Isaac and his family. Now, I should acknowledge at the outset that my younger brother and I didn't always get along growing up. Uh, there's three in my family, myself, and then my brother's two years younger than me, and then our little sister, who's two years younger than him. And especially when we were traveling, and we did many road trips in our 1988 Ford Crown Victoria LTD. And in the back seat, there was three seats, and it was impossible for my brother and I to sit next to each other for any length of time. So there was my sister, my poor sister, who was the peacekeeper, sitting with her feet on the hump. Anyone else remember the hump in those vehicles, right? And she had to have the hump all the time because we just couldn't coexist. We were fighting constantly. And he just knew, my brother always knew just what he needed to do to push my buttons, to get me mad or angry. And I know I'm not the only one. Love them or hate them, siblings are uniquely suited to knowing how to push each other's buttons. And as much as my parents had to navigate, and as much as we have to navigate as parents today, it is likely very little compared to what Isaac and Rebecca had to deal with in their own family's story. Last week, as we started to unpack the life of Isaac, we read about how Abraham, his father, sent a servant to his old homeland to bring back a suitable wife for his son Isaac. And through all of that, God and his sovereignty brought Isaac and Rebekah together, not just in an arranged marriage so that this promise given to Abraham could continue, but in a loving marriage. And Abraham, sorry, Isaac and Rebekah became husband and wife. And as our story continues, it starts um, in Genesis 25 with the passing of Abraham. And uh, as Isaac and Rebekah were married, Isaac's mom, Sarah, had already died. And now that he is married and, and Abraham at least gets this glimpse of the promise that God had, had told him that he would become the father of a great multitude, a great nation. He had one son, Isaac. Now his, his son is married to Rebekah, but there was a problem even as Abraham passes away. It was an old, familiar problem. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. They couldn't have kids. And I could only assume that Isaac was thinking, oh no, not again. Very similar to what Abraham and Sarah had to go through. Isaac and Rebekah went through much the same thing. Scripture goes over the details quite differently. 
with Abraham and with Sarah. We see them wrestling. We see God moving in different ways and, and giving this miraculous promise of a birth and then the miraculous birth itself. And the Bible only tells us that Isaac and Rebekah could not have kids. And this, this went on for 20 years, 20 years in which they could not conceive. That's a long time. A long time to wait for something that they wanted more than anything else in this world. And while we don't get all of those nitty-gritty details, Scripture does say simply and quite profoundly that during these 20 years, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. He prayed to the Lord for his wife. And so we can imagine, I think for a moment, if we put ourselves in, in their shoes, they again want this line to continue. It's part of God's promise to them. It's their desire of their heart. And they have to wait for two decades. And so there is this difficulty in waiting for something like that. But there's also this invitation that the Lord puts out to Isaac and to you and to me, that as we find ourselves in a period of waiting and wanting, that it's okay to ask. It's okay to pray. We are invited to do so and to do so persistently. And when the Lord chooses to grant that prayer, as he does for Isaac and Rebekah, it is okay to celebrate. Now, as we've touched on Abraham's story and Isaac's story, or maybe more to the point, Sarah's story and Rebekah's story, we know that barrenness was a, was a very important part to play in all of this. It was their struggle. Not just because children and childbearing was everything in the ancient Near East, but also because of the promise that God had given of this great multitude of descendants. It's a very hard thing to endure. And I want to pause for a moment and acknowledge the fact that there are some stories in our church, past and present and likely in the future, in which barrenness or the desire to start a family and the inability to do so will be part of your own story and faith journey. And I don't want to gloss over this to get to the other parts of the story because I know it is a struggle. And I can't imagine what it's like and I can't imagine enduring that for 20 years. But God is in the middle of the waiting. He invites you to pray and he will answer those prayers, whether through conception or adoption or, or a new mission in life that he directs you towards. God will answer those prayers. And when he does, it is okay to celebrate. We had my wife and I had good friends in Stonewall that were uh, approximately our age, got married very young, and then they couldn't start a family. And as the years went on, they became more and more upfront and public with that struggle in their life. And so it was a story that the church knew. And then they explored their different options and found one that worked for them. And through that, God helped them uh, conceive a child and start a family. And I still remember that child dedication because the whole church was filled with joy because God had answered a prayer even after many, many years. But if there's something that Isaac and Rebecca's story can remind us of, it's be careful what you ask God for, because he answered their prayers by giving them twins. <laughs> and I have this, this is, this is not in Scripture, but I have this conversation in my mind where uh, Rebecca figures this out and goes to Isaac and says, hey, thanks, honey, and thanks, Ike, for praying for me all those years, but could you just backed off a little bit, like not quite so persistent, you know, not quite so forceful. I mean, one child would have been enough, but here she was expecting twins. And these twins struggled in her womb, causing Rebecca much distress. I think it would have been emotional distress. I think it was to the point of being physically uncomfortable. I don't know. I've never been pregnant, never had twins. 
But, but the Bible says that they were struggling in her womb. And then she cries out in what really is an incomplete Hebrew phrase, which literally says, if this is so, why me? And so she might not have, have got captured. We didn't capture her perfect sentence there, but we get that sentiment. She's saying, why am I enduring this? After waiting for a child, now you give me twins, and I'm worried about, about my health and their health. It is causing me distress. Why am I enduring this? It was not an easy pregnancy. And she took her question to the Lord. Why must I endure this? If so, why me? And this is the way God answers her in Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. I'm not sure this is at all what Rebecca had in mind when she cried out to God. And he answers her with a prophecy that, that's quite larger than just the distress that she may be going through during her pregnancy. See, God is saying this struggle is, is just going to be foreshadowing of the fact that these two children, these two boys within your womb, will not just grow up to be men. They are going to father nations. And these nations are going to be rivals and at odds with one another. And this wrestling in the womb is a foreshadowing of that. And then at the end of this prophecy, the Lord gives a twist. He says that the older shall serve the younger. And once more, if we put our minds in the mindset of the ancient Near East, this would have been a radical thing to say. Because all of the line and the lineage and the inheritance and the family name went through the oldest son. This was the way it would work. Everything would go through the oldest son. And so as it should track, if, if God gave a promise to Abraham, then that would go through and continue through Isaac and then would continue through his oldest son. But God flips it on its head and says, no, in this instance, the older will serve the younger. It's the younger son that the promise will continue. With this prophecy in the back of her mind, and at the right time, Rebecca gives birth to the twins, two baby boys. And when came time to name them, Isaac and Rebecca used some clever Hebrew wordplay. They used puns. Now, if you don't think that I'm going to use this as a shameless opportunity to share with you some puns, you don't know me well enough yet. My family got me a game a few years ago called Punderdome. They refused to play with me, so now I have to find other ways of sharing some of these puns with you. Uh, and this has nothing else really to add to the sermon, so just enjoy it's also in question and answer form, so if you want to think along, maybe you're clever enough to figure these out. <clears throat> Why was the broom late for school? He was sweeping in. What's the most jamming fruit? Banana na 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 na. How did the astronaut make his apartment warmer? It's an appropriate question on a day like today. You know the answer. Use a space heater. What food is the chattiest? Tacos. That makes sense. What kind of plant generates the most energy? You know this one. Simple. A power plant, right? There we go. And last and most certainly least, <laughs> what's a pessimistic pelican called? A pelicant. There you go. Those are the, that's my extra five minutes right there. <laughs> Thank you for not sharing. 
But unfortunately, the wordplay we see in Genesis 25 is not a lame English pun. It is Hebrew wordplay. And so it's going to take a little bit of explaining, but I think they are some important details. The firstborn is, is, is delivered, and he comes out, and we read in Genesis 25 that he is red, and all his body is like a hairy cloak. So they named him Esau. I can just imagine the maid delivering this child and handing him to Rebecca, saying, oh, you... He gave birth to a beautiful baby Sasquatch. <laughs> I mean, his whole body was like a, like a hairy cloak, like a garment of hair. I, would have been, I can't imagine that being the first experience of, of, of childbirth. But there you go. That's the, that was Esau. And these details also give us a clue to his name and later on some of the identity of the nation that he would father. Red doesn't give Esau his name, but it gives him his other name one that we see referred to in the next story in Genesis 25:30 that Esau would be called Edom which means red and this would be the name not just for Esau but the name for the nation that he would father they would be the Edomites Edom means red and then he comes out and he is hairy like a cloak and the Hebrew word for hair is sear which is very similar to the mountains of Seir Similar spelling, similar pronunciation, slightly different. And those mountains of Seir are where the Edomites would live. And so all of these details to the readers of this many years later would have known, oh, these are the Edomites who live on the mountains of Seir. Hebrew wordplay. Well, the secondborn also has a similar naming experience. He comes out a close second, holding on to Esau's heel and presumably not looking like a Sasquatch. Jacob enters this world. He is named Jacob, and in Hebrew, Jacob has the same consonants as the word for heel. And this name was not unique. It's used elsewhere in, in Jewish culture, in Israelite culture, and it often means may God protect. But it also can be understood as he grabs the heel, which makes sense, and deceiver. And if you are familiar at all with Jacob's story, all three of those meanings ring true for him. <laughs> May God protect that deceiver who grabs the heel. There you go. That is Jacob in a nutshell. Hebrew wordplay for, for naming these children. And not only do these twin boys look very different and are named quite differently, but they grow up to become very different type of men, types of men. Esau, we could say as a caricature, is a man's man. I mean, he has to be. He's hairy, right? And not only is he hairy, he likes to be outside. He likes to hunt and cook meat. Oh, oh, this is uh, brawn over brains for Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, is a mama's boy. He loves to be inside. He's quiet and quite clever. You could say he is brains over brawn. Polar opposite children, these twin boys. And this led to natural favorites between the two parents. Scripture says that Isaac loved Esau because he cooked meat for him. <laughs> and that adds up. My boys bring me meat. I love them a little bit more. It's, uh, but Isaac had this affinity towards Esau. And meanwhile, Rebekah loved Jacob. And they had this natural affinity, but more than that, and unfortunately, the parents did nothing to hide their favor. They quite openly played favorites, and this led to significant harm in the family. This is really the launching point for the rest of our sermon here this morning. Predicti predictably, parenting from favoritism did not go very well for Isaac and Rebekah. At the end of Genesis 25, 
we see Esau and Jacob as young men. And Esau goes and he, he is hunting like he is wont to do. And he comes back and he is starving. And Jacob is there making a pot of stew. And it must have been a really good pot of stew. And Esau must have been exceptionally hungry. Because in his frenzied state for food, Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And that, and that begins to, to continue to sow the seeds of sibling rivalry between the two. They were wrestling in their mother's womb. There are going to be two different nations that will be at odds. Their parents are playing favorites. And now even Jacob is, is doing things to Esau, like taking his birthright that is not going to go over well. But it's really in Genesis chapter 27 that we see the results of this favoritism blow up in the faces of Isaac and Rebekah and their entire family. In Genesis 27, Isaac is well advanced in years and it's come, uh, the time has come for him to give his blessing to his firstborn. That's what should happen. And this blessing would, would confer with it much of the inheritance and the lineage and all of what it meant to continue to carry on the family name and the promise that, that God had given to his father, Abraham. And yet when this time comes, we see Rebekah actively work against her husband and help her favorite son, Jacob, deceive his father into giving him the blessing that should have gone to the eldest son. In order to do this, Rebekah dresses up Jacob in the clothing of Esau, and then she puts goat skins on his arms and neck to appear and to feel hairy like a Sasquatch. I mean, like Esau was. Again, there are a few details. He was an exceptionally hairy man. Like if you could fool someone by putting goat skin on, that's, that's impressive. And this only would work because Isaac was well advanced in years and he was old and his, his vision must not be very good. And so Rebecca sets this all up and she sends Jacob to bring him the food and to receive this blessing of the firstborn and it works. But it works with dire consequences. When Esau returns and finds out of what his mother and his brother have done to him, he is absolutely livid and he swears that he will kill Jacob. We see this favoritism get to the point of having mortal consequences. Jacob is forced to flee for his life and that family is broken in half for many, many years. What, what can we learn from a lesson like this? from a story like this. We can learn that favoritism is destructive in our relationships. It doesn't work well. It never will work, work well. It hasn't worked well before. Now, do you have a favorite child? Parents, do you have a favorite child? Of course you do. Just keep it to yourself. Don't say it out loud. Especially if it's not the child sitting right next to you right now. Just, shh, quiet. Right? Yeah, I have a favorite child. I'm not going to tell you which one of my boys is your, my favorite. I'm not going to say that. No, I mean, you can have a favorite, but that doesn't mean you play favorites. You can have, you're, you're always, there's a difference between having a favorite and playing favorites. We will always have special and unique connections with a handful of select few people in this world. Well, they will be closest to us. We will always feel like we're on the same page. They will understand us. It can be your spouse. It can be uh, a close friend. It can be a parent or child. It can be a niece or a nephew that you just get and, and you love and, and you have this connection with that, that isn't shared with everybody else, even the others that you love in your family and friends around you. It's okay to have that close connection. It's okay to have a favorite. That's not a problem. The problem occurs 
when we give preferential treatment to, to those that we appreciate the most. Just for example, as your pastor, I will say I love and appreciate you all. But I know many of you to different extents. Some of you I know just barely, and others I would consider a close friend. And that is okay. There are many of you, and we will all have different types of relationships. And having some close friends in this church is not a problem. But now, if I were to use my, my power and authority that's been given to me as a pastor, which isn't very much, by the way, but there's some, if I were to use that to try to put all my closest friends in these preferred um, positions, like let's just stack the leadership team with people that I like the most, and they see the same thing, uh, they see everything the same way that I do. And if I were to do that, that would move from having close friends or favorites to acting out in favoritism, and it would have um, poor ramifications for the church. Or perhaps you are at work. And uh, whether it is a large group or a small group of people, you've been given some authority and oversight. Uh, just a handful working under, yeah, under you and you're their boss or you have a whole department or a whole company, whatever the case may be. If you then always give preferred tasks and perks to those employees under your care that you like the most, because you will have favorites, if you always give them preferential treatment, then it's going to sow discord in your inner circle. And like Isaac and Rebecca, if you shamelessly dote on the child you love the most at the expense of the others, that goes from favorite to favoritism. And there's a problem with that. And the problem really doesn't even have much to do with you. The problem is that favoritism breeds rivalries. By elevating somebody or a group of people over the rest of a certain other group of people, you introduce anger and jealousy, not necessarily towards you, but towards those that you have favored. You do them no favors by playing favorites. You invite this anger, this jealousy, this rivalry, and you take these relationships in a church or a workplace or a family, and you actively create a rift, which is why I won't play favorites in the church. It's bad for relationships, not just bad policy. It's bad for unity and togetherness. It's why if you are a boss and you have a group of favorites, your inner circle, then if you treat them preferentially, it will be their coworkers that will become suspicious and hostile towards those people that you want to do favors for. And if you elevate one child above the others, you invite sibling rivalry, just like Jacob and Esau, and just like Joseph and his brothers. Wait, did Jacob learn nothing from this experience? Well, that's a question we can continue to ask ourselves. We can't play favorites because we don't have perfect judgment. We are naturally law, uh, flawed. We are limited. We're biased. We're easily drawn to things that we shouldn't be drawn to. For all those reasons, favoritism will never work for us. God has no such limitations. And I would go so far as to say that only God can play favorites. You might think, well, wait a minute. Isn't, isn't that always bad or always wrong? I'm like, for you and for me, yes, it is. But I would say that much of the story of Scripture is just so, God playing favorites. Look at Abraham and Isaac's story. The entire story and narrative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Israel, is God choosing exclusively one group of people to be his own. He says, I choose you. I don't choose any of the other nations. I choose you. You are my people. I am your God. It is playing favorites. God chose to do this in his sovereignty. It was exclusive. 
It came at the expense of other nations. It was God's sovereign choice. And when, and when Paul begins to describe God's ability to choose things in his sovereignty in Romans 9, he actually uses Isaac's story as the background or the groundwork for his argument. So I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 9, picking up in verse 6. And this should be on the screen for you to follow along with as well. We'll read it together and then we'll make sense of it as well. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And, and in this, uh, Paul is, is referring to, he's quoting from a prophecy in Malachi, and he's not referring to the single person Jacob or the single person Esau. He's referring to the two nations that descended from those men. He's saying, I have chosen Jacob. I chose Israel. I did not choose Esau. This was God's sovereign choice. This was much of the story of Scripture. Paul goes on to continue to describe in Romans 9 how God continues to exercise his sovereignty today. He says, he is the potter and we are the clay. And if you want to feel more than slightly uncomfortable, read Romans 9. It puts us in our place. And I can say to you, don't play favorites, but God can do what he wills and what he chooses in his perfect sovereignty. And that may leave us uncomfortable. But that is not the entire story of Scripture nor is it the entirety of Paul's argument. Yes, it is true that God made a covenant and chose Abraham. He played favorites. But even, even at the very outset of this promise, God had a greater purpose. He had a greater goal and mission in mind. And when we go back to Genesis 12, we see that as God is making this promise to Abraham and only Abraham, he also says that through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is saying, yes, at this moment, I choose you. I choose Israel. But there will come a time in which this will affect positively everyone in the world. And as Paul said, God's choosing of Jacob over Esau was for a reason. And why was that reason? In verse 11, so that God's purpose of election might continue. God was working through Abraham, through Isaac, through this favoritism to reach the entire world. And this purpose continued and found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, where the cross changed everything as Jesus suffered and died for us. I will go so far as to make this point. The gospel of Jesus is anti-favoritism. It is the exact opposite of favoritism. The exact opposite. I could point to many different passages, but I think I want to bring us to a very familiar part of the Bible, John 3.16 reading all the way to verse 18. This is what Jesus himself says to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
But whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what is John 3 telling us? A few profound things that we need to be reminded of, that profound things that are the gospel of Jesus. First of all, that God gave us his only Son, his one and only Son. If this was favoritism, Favoritism would never have allowed Jesus to come down to our level. We would never have a Christmas celebration. Favoritism would keep God's Son in heaven, where he belongs, where he deserved to be. But God not only sent his Son, he sent his Son to die on the cross for our sins. Not only did Jesus come down to be with us, but he came obedient to this mission of salvation where he would bleed and suffer and die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins. And Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He, he was the only one who would never have deserved such a fate. And so if God were to play favorites, favoritism would never have allowed Jesus to suffer unjustly. And John says that God did this all not to condemn, but to save the world. This is the opposite of favoritism, where God took his one and only son, willfully, willingly let him go, sacrificed him upon the cross to save those lost in darkness, hostile to God, uninterested in him. God gave up his favorite so that those who were opposed to him could not be condemned, would instead be saved. The gospel is anti-favoritism. So if we seek to live gospel-centered lives, then we also need to view people with a perspective of God. God looked down at the world, and he looked down at everyone, those who were doing well and those who were struggling, those that were seeking after him and those that were running away, those that were looking for light and those that were lost in darkness. And he said, each and every one of you, I love to the point of being willing to die for. Each and every one of you, I will sacrifice my one and only son. And there is no type of favoritism that can be greater than that love. So when we look at the people around us, when we look at the world around us, in our families, and in our friend groups, in our work groups, no matter what relationship we're thinking about, we need to remember that nobody is worth any more and certainly no less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So let us treat the world, and the people in it with the respect that Jesus' love demands. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray once more. Father God, I thank you so much that you have a love that we don't deserve. That you have a love that, that, that is freely given through your Son, Jesus. That, that now, if any of us are here today and we believe in you, then we can say, based on the promise we read together, that we are not condemned, that we are instead forgiven, that we are instead given life, that we can live in the light. God, you gave up your one and only Son so that this may be true for us here today. And may we allow this good news of Jesus to just be a part of us as we go, a part of us as we live in our relationships, God, that we would also make sure that we look at everyone with your eyes. 
people that you are willing to lay down your life for. May we treat them the same. We pray this in your name. Amen.